Okay, welcome back. So, um, I'm going to share a little about um, where I've been teaching and partly inspired uh, the theme for this talk tonight, um, which was um, what I was chanting about. <clears throat> and so, um, I would share a little, see how far I get with where what I was doing. Um, so I was in, uh, invited to Bhutan. Uh, the privilege of going back there. It's my third time to teach, um, and um, teach mindfulness and meditation and emotional intelligence uh, to uh, all ten government ministries, um, which is a tremendous privilege uh, to go just to be there in in that country. It's a very beautiful country. It's a very beautiful, rich Buddhist culture, incredibly well preserved, very enlightened uh, monarchy and government that's really helped preserve the culture and the traditions and the practices in a very, very beautiful, wholesome way. and so I was part of a team that was teaching um, uh, um, a teacher training <clears throat> so they could roll out this program that we were teaching, which is a combination of mindfulness and emotional intelligence and leadership. Um, and they would roll it out to all 18,000 uh, civil servants. So it's a bit like someone going here to DC and teaching. So, you know, we trained about 100 people and then rolling it out to everybody in uh, the U.S. government. Mindfulness, emotional intelligence, yes, a little needed, one could say. <clears throat> so, of course, it's, uh, as, I, as I said when I first went there last year to teach, I said it's very, I feel very humble coming to a you know, beautiful, uh, intact and thriving Buddhist culture as a white English male a Buddhist teacher, but um, haven't, haven't grown up in Buddhism, but trained uh, extensively in Buddhism, but felt quite humble going back there to share, actually, um, some of the Buddha's early teachings, even though I wasn't there under the auspices of teaching Buddhism. I was there teaching emotional intelligence and mindfulness, but really drawn from the Buddhist tradition. Um, <clears throat> And as one uh, friend, uh, uh, Sonam, she said, um, Bhutan is like a, a, treasure chest, a pr- treasure chest of practices that need to be released. That often in uh, these, these deep traditions, especially in the Vajrayana tradition, there's a whole plethora of beautiful, profound practices. But for most people, uh, including people in that country, not so available, not so readily taught. Um, Even the monks that that I had the good fortune of speaking to, they they first study for nine years before they do any meditation practice. So if you want to learn to meditate, you've got a lot of study ahead of you and a lot of training before you actually get to practice. Here you just walk in the door and pay you 10 bucks or whatever it is and get to meditate. So, um, But there's a strong view about training the mind through, through study first um, and then going off to do a three-year meditation retreat if you want to meditate. So slightly different bar. Um, so we had a, a monk walk in off a seven-year retreat into the training and heard about what we were doing and decided to join the training and um, doing all kinds of interesting Dzogchen practices um, on his retreat. And he was curious to see, um, so this training that I was teaching, Search Inside Yourself, was developed at Google and using uh, using a lot of neuroscience um, and uh, looking at how the neuroscience um, is uh, in some ways validating these ancient practices, not validating, but, but show, showing their efficacy through brain studies and on behavior and, and changes in psychology, and etc. And um, so they were very curious, and, and it was very interesting for them to see their practices in a way 
reshared with them, but through this sort of evidence-based approach. Um, of course, there's a lot of interest in science and neuroscience and, and how that's um, uh, sort of not exactly proving, but validating in a certain way these ancient practices. So, um, and it's just also a joy for me to be in a culture where, having studied Buddhism for 35 years and then going into a culture where that's just part of the fabric and part of people and uh, part of the way people live. And so as part of that, for example, um, uh, it's mostly a vegetarian culture. There's no um, uh, butchery allowed in the country, no fishing allowed in the country because that would violate the first principle of, of ethics, which is to harm. And so there's a very pervasive quality of non-harming that runs throughout the country. Um, I was reading online some of the stats in, in, in some years ago the, the, for the youth crime there were in the, in the whole country there were 63 youth were convicted for juvenile crime that's in a country the size I'm not quite sure how big Bhutan is but it's, it's, it's a sizable country so it's very safe there's a sense of um, integrity that I feel there that runs through people and um, when I first went uh, traveling there with with a group of Dharma teachers, we were somewhat surprised and a little initially disappointed that there wasn't so as much meditation as we thought. There's a lot of devotional practice. There's a lot of uh, ritual practice, mantra practice, um, a lot of guru uh, yoga practices, and um, but not so much meditation in the way that I was familiar with it in the insight tradition, and. Um, so we were initially surprised by that. And then we, as, as we started to sort of feel saturated in the culture, we realized people were living the teaching. Right? We practice to live, and they felt like they were living these beautiful qualities of kindness and generosity and patience and presence uh, and equanimity uh, and some, often living in very difficult conditions. Uh, my partner was teaching there uh, this time and, and, and a couple of years ago, and it was her birthday. And at the end of the teaching, uh, they announced it was her birthday, and people were just coming up giving their thanks for the teaching. And they just wanted to give anything that they could. She got big pens, she got people's brooches. So just just that that impulse to give, to share, is so strong in the culture. The, the, the value of understanding the power of generosity, the power of goodness, the power of living well, and also refreshing to be in a culture that's not so self-focused, and both in being in Indonesia and in Bhutan, where there's still that presence of a culture that's more oriented towards community, and towards family, uh, and towards a certain kind of selflessness. Um, which, of course, in Bhutan is creating a bit of a, 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 a kind of momentous clash of culture. Bhutan was, preserved, was, was isolated from the world till 1972, had no roads, didn't have TVs till 1999. Lucky them. And, um, and now, you, now, you know, the, the younger generation are growing up with YouTube and Instagram and Snapchat. And this is incredible clash of feudal culture, feudal Buddhist culture, and modern, uh, you could say, narcissistic culture, materialistic culture, and tremendous uh, stress, particularly on the youth, trying to manage coming from a culture that's not so self-oriented, coming into a 21st century digital culture that's very self-oriented. And there's a lot of uh, stress in, in the youth and, and, and actually uh, high rates of suicide, um, which goes against the image of Bhutan, which is the pioneer of the gross national happiness index. Right? We have the, the gross, what is the GDP, the gross domestic product index, right? a measure of productivity as a success, a sign of success. So they wanted to have a much more deeper, sustainable evaluation of what makes a, for, a, for a culture of well-being, 
right? really drawn from Buddhist principles. And so there's five key areas that, that contribute to gross national happiness, one of which is access to education, access to universal health care, um, to preservation of culture, to, um, to uh, preservation of land and land stewardship. They have a commitment to keeping 65% of their uh, country forested and they're up to 72%. They're like exceeding this already incredibly high uh, uh, standard. And I think there's, there's another one I didn't mention um, so beautiful to, to just to, and I, I'm always when I'm talking to the locals and the taxi drivers and asking about. So what do you do about you know the roads and and when people get sick and, and the homelessness and you know, we don't have homelessness here. I say, oh, really? Okay. And what about if you can't afford healthcare? Well, no, healthcare is available. It's you know, it's free. It's offered by you know we we're a poor country, but we do what we can to make sure everybody has healthcare and. It's like, it sounds a little too sane. It sounds like the government's doing the right thing. You have an incredibly enlightened monarchy. I think it's the only monarchy in the world. I don't know if this is true, but anyone that I know that in, uh, so that's now into their fifth, fifth reign of the monarchy and the third, the third monarch um, decided to modernize the country and to uh, renounce the monarchy and to turn it into a democratic country. So the king had all the power, gave all the power over to a democratic uh, constitution. And so the kings and the, the, the queens and royal family basically dedicate themselves to helping, particularly this current king, he walks around the country to all the outlying villages to seeing what the villages need incredibly uh, dedicated towards uh, uplifting their country, education, healthcare. Very beautiful, very inspiring. Just like here, really, you know. You know. <laughs> and so I'm teaching this program for the RSC, RS, RCSC, the Royal uh, Commission for something, something, um, part of the, basically, the HR for the government who wanted to bring this uh, emotional intelligence mindfulness training for all the the government employees. And um, they were all volunteering their time. And they they work hard, they work six days a week, and they were were happily volunteering because they they wanted to serve. And they knew this would be good for the the government, they knew it would be good for the country, they knew it would be good for people, they knew it would be good for themselves. And... um, so, yeah, so a privilege to be there. And so we're teaching in this school. Um, it was freezing when we were there, so the buildings mostly don't have heat. And the, the, the temperature, average temperature in the nighttime was about 20 degrees Fahrenheit. And daytime about mm, 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And um, so the buildings were really cold. Um, and I'm wearing traditional dress, which is sort of like... The go, which sort of looks a bit like a kimono. Um, anyway, in this school, which was like an, walking into a walk-in refrigerator, um, the no heat in the school, um, there was lots of these uh, sayings, these quotations, um, some sort of self-help quotations, and then at other places there were quotes from the Buddha. And um, one of the quotes, uh, which is what I want to talk about tonight, is the, the quite famous quote, cease to do harm, cultivate goodness, train the mind. Cease to do harm, cultivate goodness, train and purify your mind. And I thought, how cool to go to a high school where that is like on the that's the graffiti on the wall. <laughs> That's the culture, that's the teaching, that's the spirit, that's the principles in which they're uh, wanting to cultivate in their kids. Beautiful. Cease to do harm, cultivate goodness, purify the mind. So that's what I was chanting earlier, Um, the literal meaning of the chant, which I may have read, I don't remember. 
I got off the plane yesterday, so I'm a little jet-lagged. Um, the, the time is now 8.30 in the morning, wherever I was, was yesterday. Um, cease to do evil, cultivate the good, purify the mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. So, <clears throat> this is a great um, you know, basis for so much of the Buddha's teaching. Cultivate wholesome states of mind and heart. Let go of release. Don't feed that which is harmful in ourselves, in our actions, in the way we are with others in the world. And train the mind. And that's what we're doing here before the break. Training the mind and heart. How to be present. How to be awake. How to be free. How to know ourselves. How to know our experience. Without that awareness, without that knowing, it's hard to know what's helpful and what's harmful. Right? We need that clarity of discernment to know, is this really beneficial or is it actually uh, causing more complexity or more stress? This is, uh, this is um, uh, poet Hafez puts it in his uh, somewhat poignant and pithy way. He says, You carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. (laughs) And you all have the genius to build a swing in your backyard for the divine. That sounds like a hell of a lot more fun to me. Let's start laughing, drawing blueprints, gathering our talented friends. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them and mix them. So... That's our choice, right? We have all these ingredients with us. And we can turn our life, as he says, into a nightmare. Wake up in the morning feeling a little tired, maybe hungover, maybe grumpy. We start judging ourselves. We start bitching on other people. We start looking at everything that's negative in our life and we feel miserable and depressed. That's called getting the ingredients and making yourself feel crappy. And we also have other ingredients like kindness, like awareness, like presence, like love, like goodness and generosity that we cultivate, bring attention to. And as we, as we incline towards them, as we cultivate them, what happens when we feel generous, when we feel kind? It's uplifting, it's brightening. Right? It supports our well-being and the well-being of others. So, um, like most teachings, spiritual teachings, Buddhist teachings, very easy to say, very hard to do. Cultivate goodness, do no harm, purify the mind, get on with it. (laughs) But not so easy. Life's complicated and messy. So a Chinese emperor sends for a Buddhist teacher to explain the Buddhist path. The teacher says, just says, cease to do evil, learn to do good, purify the heart. The emperor's not pleased and says, a child of seven could understand that. And the teacher replies, yes, but an old man of 80 could fail to put it into practice. So we know all this stuff. And what I'm going to say to you is not new, it's not original, it's all borrowed wisdom, hopefully something that I've learned along the way. Cultivate goodness. I mean, I went to a Catholic school and, you know, not dissimilar message, no, not quite, I would say, as articulate, but I was told to be a good Catholic. <laughs> little challenging since I wasn't one. Um, being a young arsonist that I was, setting a light to farmer's fields and all kinds, anything I could get my hands on, don't think I was quite practicing being a good Catholic. I didn't quite know what that was. I'd complain to my mother that you know, at school they'd say, um, love your neighbors. We did that at church too. And I'd say, but I don't like my neighbors. Why would I want to love them? I think she probably said, well, you should. And I think I probably replied, but how? (laughs) And she probably said, well, just love them. All right. Great. Good. Good luck with that. So, you know, I think one of the gifts of the Buddhist teaching is it's pragmatic. It's practical. There's tools, there's practices, there's techniques, there's methodologies, there's stages, there's developmental processes that you can cultivate your mind and heart. We we cultivate mind and heart by looking at ourselves, by turning that gaze of attention inwards 
as we do in meditation, as we do with mindfulness in our lives? What are we, what's going on as we move and talk and live and breathe and, and interact? And having um, been a psychologist for some time and coach and studying neuroscience, it's interesting to see how, um, particularly with um, you know, cognitive neuroscience and neuroscience in general, how it's quite often affirming what the Buddha was speaking to. That when we cultivate goodness, when we cultivate wholesomeness, when we cultivate qualities like generosity, what happens? It lights up happiness centers, we get dopamine hits. Right? We're oriented, we're hardwired to feel better when we're wholesome. When we're, when we're narcissistic and selfish and greedy and self-indulgent and mean and cruel and hateful, what happens? We feel contracted, we feel small, we feel pain inside. And so if we listen, if we're tuned, we can see what, what brings wholesomeness, what brings delight, what brings spaciousness. I was excited to get back to... Um, uh, uh, watching my Premier League soccer. I'm a big uh, English soccer fan. It's the major form of social connection in Asia. I could talk to anybody and everybody, uh, especially uh, men, uh, about soccer. It was this great way to connect, especially Premier League soccer, because that's sort of like one of the currencies. And so I was very excited to get back to watch some games that I'd missed, some of the highlights. And I, and I always notice this when I've been watching for a while. I get back and I'm watching my rather pathetic soccer team lose, as it usually does. And I'm actually tracking myself. And like, even though my mind thinks this is a pleasurable experience, actually, it's very unpleasant. <laughs> I'm tense. I'm contracted. We 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 concede a goal. Or we concede another goal. And I'm hating the other team. I'm contracted. Uh, and I grasp for the next game, hoping that's a little better, but that's also annoying and frustrating. They never play well. And why do they, you know. like, This actually is not that wholesome. It's something that's very familiar and sort of pleasurable because it's what I do and it's, it's part of my identity as an English person. But if I look, is this really actually cultivating wholesome states of generosity and kindness and, you know, not really, no. <laughs> so that's, you know, where awareness comes in. You know, like, oh, is this, is this really actually useful for my well-being? I do it because it's fun and why not? It's nice to have a little entertainment. And yet, and yet, you know, what really actually brings lasting happiness, right? That's, that's the whole thrust of the Buddha's teaching. What really serves your well-being, right? We get all very busy doing a lot of stuff, working and social media and being busy doing who knows what. And as my nephew, who's a young man, who's asking these very important existential questions, as you do as a young person, it's like, why is everybody running around so busy and not happy? Why is everyone working so hard and being enslaved to mortgages and not happy? Like, why aren't people figuring out what makes them happy? That's good questions, young man. <laughs> These are good things to reflect on. This is from the Buddha. He says, be mindful of skillful acts and repeat these over and over again. Be mindful of skillful acts and repeat these over and over. Find pleasure in the well-integrated life and calm and peace will prevail. Skillful actions will always bring peaceful mind. So what's a skillful action? What are the skillful things you do in your life that bring pleasure and calm and peace and well-being. Right? And there are probably many things you do in your day that bring well-being, right? moments of kindness to your family, to your kids. Maybe you go outside in the morning and you feed the birds or you stroke the dog's head or you 
you know, bring your spouse a cup of tea or you go to work and you're warm and you say you take actually take time to actually say hello to the bus driver or the Uber driver or whatever it is. And you just a very simple act of kindness, just an act of presence of acknowledging someone's existence rather than being stuck on your phone or spaced out. Right? What are the things that bring well-being? I love to bring my partner a coffee in the morning. Just It's just a sweet thing to do, just to start the day practicing generosity. Like, why not? Make someone happy. And what happens? We feel happy. It's very simple. <laughs> right? Or texting someone I love and just saying, thinking of you, hope you have a great day. You know, it doesn't take much. Right? Or sitting in meditation for one minute, 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever you have in the day, in the morning, and just finding stillness. As I often advocate to people, waking up in the morning with an old-fashioned alarm clock, not your cell phone, and not jumping on email before you've gotten out of bed. Does it bring happiness? No. It seemed, there's a sort of idea that it placates the anxiety, but what happens when you read email? You get more anxious because there's always more stuff to do and things you didn't respond to and things you've got to respond to. And there goes your meditation time. Oh, it's late for work too. Does that bring happiness? Also from the Buddha. Should a person commit harm to themselves or others, let them not repeat the harm over and over Wrongdoing can be ignored, but the pain that eventually follows cannot. Another interesting line. Wrongdoing can be ignored. So we can often not pay attention to a way that we harm ourselves or others. Maybe we are off-handed with a comment to somebody. Maybe we're rude to somebody on customer service on United Airlines or whoever you're calling and stuck on hold for half an hour and you're a little brusque and and we're not noticing the brusqueness on the call, and then we get off the call, and we're like, oh, that was actually really mean to that person. That's a person sitting in some warehouse in Indonesia, or Calcutta, or Kansas, you know, getting minimum wage, dealing with irate customers. That's a, human, that's a life. Right? Wrongdoing can be ignored, but the pain that eventually follows cannot be ignored. Right? Our actions come up, catch up with each other. Karma is you don't get away with nothing. Like dust thrown into the wind, pain will return to the one who offends another. How often have you said something, done something, maybe out of reactivity, maybe out of blindness, maybe who knows why we do all kinds of things, sometimes wonderful, sometimes not so wonderful. And we might say something to a loved one, to a parent, a child, and in a fit of rage or hurt, and then we sometimes live with the pain of that for years. Sometimes it destroys a relationship. Right? We live with the pain of that. Right? That's why it behooves us to practice awareness, to practice mindfulness. So we're not so caught up in our reactivity. We can pause and breathe before we yell or do something hurtful. Skillful actions will always bring peace of mind. What would it be like if your life was full of skillful actions? And then my trip to, to, to Bhutan um, felt like it was a lot of skillful action. It was, a, it was an incredible blessing to be invited. It was a blessing to go there. It was a blessing to be there. And it had a lot of wholesomeness to sharing these wonderful teachings. And there's that sort of well it's a wellspring of well-being and knowing that, you know, that teaching happened, but those 70 graduated teachers will now be teaching 18,000 people and those people will be teaching thousands of other people. It's a sense of goodness, right? So we reflect on the things that you do in your life that bring goodness,
So the proof of our practice is how we live this stuff off the cushion in our lives, in our relationships. And of course we're not perfect. We mess up and we start again and we mess up and we start again. That's practice. Someone asked Gandhi what his, what his message was, what his teaching was. He says, how I live my life, that's my teaching. Right? So if someone were to follow you around and you were to say, what I teach is how I live, what would they say about your teaching? What would your teaching say about the way you live? One thing that's really hard about being a teacher, being a Dharma teacher, is the way that one lives is sort of on scrutiny to oneself. And I'm, here I am teaching about you know, ceasing to do harm and, and learning to do good and purifying the mind. And I look at my actions and sometimes I live in accordance with that, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm jet lagged and tired and grumpy and don't, I'm not the kindest person to be around. I'm just grumpy. I try to contain the grumpiness. <laughs> I try to withdraw so I don't inflict it on anybody else. You know, so we do what we can with the conditions that we have, right? Sometimes I've got a lot of chronic pain. Sometimes I've got chronic fatigue. Do we do the best with the conditions that we have? We're not perfect, but we're orienting, we're nudging our ship in the direction of wholesomeness. Why? Because wholesomeness, as the Buddha said, feels good. Feels good creates wholesomeness for ourselves and for others. Creates peace of mind. Does anybody here not want peace of mind? There's a few people like, yeah, no, overrated. <laughs> I'd say 99.99% people here seem like they're open to some peace of mind. And how's, 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 the, how's the project going? <laughs> how's that practice going? How's that orientation going? So I was reflecting about the ceasing to do harm piece of this. And of course, you know, these things are easier said than done. But I was thinking, there's, there's, to break it down, um, I was breaking it down into four steps. One is, first we need insight and understanding into what we do that's harmful. We need some clarity of what it is that's not so skillful. And we can all look at our lives honestly and say, yeah, there's, there's areas in my life that are not so skillful. Maybe the way I talk to my loved ones. Sometimes we talk to our loved ones with the least respect. Children, parents, spouses. Maybe the way I treat my body. Maybe the way that I'm venomous towards my political opponents. And so the second second part of that process, first we understand what's harmful, the second is releasing. Seeing if we can change, seeing if we can let go, seeing if we can cultivate something different. The third step, is forgiveness for our past actions. We've all been unskillful in our lives numerous occasions. We're human. Right? To judge and condemn and revile ourselves will probably likely sow the seeds for repeating that unskillful action. To understand and forgive is a, is a, is a pathway to healing. And then feeling compassion for, the, for that which fueled that unskillfulness. What were, what were the conditions that, that caused you to be unskillful in the past or the present or last, the last hour, yesterday? Maybe you were hungry, maybe you were angry, maybe you were hurt, maybe you were frightened, maybe you were scared, maybe trauma was resurfacing and you got triggered and you acted out. It happens. So can we have compassion for our the conditioning? And so to ask yourself, where do you, where do, you do harm? To yourself, to others, to the world. So often we harm ourselves with our mind. Right? One of my earlier books was on the inner critic. Anybody judge themselves here? Anybody slightly high standards? Right? Right? I mean, if we, one day we're going to be able to have screens, we're going to plug you in and we're going to be able to see your thoughts. And we're going to put them on the screen up here. Meditator 32, I hate myself, I'm a crap meditator. Meditator 64, you're full of shit. 
Meditator 21, I hate myself, nobody loves me, I'm unlovable. Right? We're cruel to ourselves. We tell ourselves usually things that are not true, that are exaggerations, that are inaccurate, that are inherited from the past, that are distorted, unhelpful, unconstructive, inaccurate views. They're mostly views that are not actually true, that we believe and we feel miserable. That is causing harm to ourselves. Right? We want to pay attention to what our mind is saying to us and how inaccurate and usually distorted it is. And if you do have a critic, please make it a New Year's resolution to pay attention to it, to do some work with it, to read about it, to study it, to free yourself from it. Because it's, the, I'd say, the number one source of self-created suffering. And check out my book if you're interested, but there's plenty of good literature about it. When I first started meditating, my critic was ruthless, cruel, savage, harsh, brutal. My journals are just full of depressing misery. And I found this practice when I was 19. I was really lucky. I was really happy to find some kind of sanity that would help me deal with my mind that was kind of crazy. And it took a long time, you know, I've been doing this for a while. It took many years to really change that from a harmful voice to a kind voice, from a critical voice to a compassionate voice. And of course, doing that to myself, I'm also a lot kinder and a lot more compassionate to other people. If I hadn't done that work in here, I wouldn't be kinder and compassionate. I'd still be judgmental and righteous as I was when I was 20. Harm that we do to us, to our heart. What are the ways that you harm your heart? What are the ways that you override your heart or don't listen to your heart or don't feel your heart or don't honor the sadness and wounds or trauma or longing or whatever is in there? Tend to our heart. It's a cherished sanctuary. We need to listen, we need to feel, we need to feel our humanness, we need to be tender with it. I was thinking one of the ways that we harm ourselves is with uh, culture's orientation to self-absorption. I was sitting on the plane, as I often do, watching people do what they do on planes, which these days is mostly pop out the camera, the phone, and review their Instagram photos, the photos that will be going or have gone on Instagram. And it's just it's this sort of plethora of um, self-absorption. Uh, and I, I was on Airbnb today, and uh, this ad popped up for Airbnb. It said it had this picture of some jungle cottage thing, treehouse, and it said, "Imagine the photos that you'll post." <laughs> I thought, "Is that what we've become? I'm going to book this holiday vacation rental so I can post about it on Instagram." That's great. That's called not creating the conditions for happiness. Right? You know, and we're collectively all sucked in. I post photos on Instagram and Facebook. It's not like I'm not doing that. I'm very mindful of what I post and why I post. Um, I prefer not to have pictures of me. <laughs> Nature's farmer in the jungle in Bali was way more interesting than a photo of myself. Um, but to be mindful, what is that habit? You know, the, the the rates of suicide and anxiety and depression in our youth, right? With this obsession of narcissistic self-absorption that that that's, that people are growing up in a culture of that, tremendously harmful. And it's the culture that we swim in. Right? We're part of it. It's not like it's bad other. No, we're part of it. And I post pictures of myself mostly so my family can see them. And it's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. We can see what each other's doing. It's not inherently bad. But to be mindful of one's relationship to it is it feeding a sense of desperation for attention 
and likes and acknowledgements and tweets and shares and whatever it is that we're looking for? Or is it just a, a sharing of joy that we're traveling here and it's beautiful? Or we help you trying to create envy right? and the perfect life. Harming to our bodies. How do you take care of your body? Do you cherish this temple? The body is a temple only if you treat it like one. Usually we treat it like a garbage dump. Fast food operation. So not easy. I'm noticing as I talk about the ways that we cause harm. This is just to ourselves. I'm not even talking about harming others. Right? It's kind of like I can feel it in the room. I can feel it myself. It's like, oh, this is kind of like, this is uncomfortable. I don't really want to be, I want to be talking about the good stuff, about cultivating goodness, because that's really fun and joyful and happy. Right? But you know, the Buddha said, you know, to, to end suffering, we have to understand suffering. And we have to understand how we cause harm to ourselves. How we cause harm to others. You know, we're this, we're this wild species that causes, has does the most hideous things to each other and animals and the planet and does the most amazing, wondrous, creative, imaginative, beautiful, self-sacrificing things. Right? And we have this choice point to create beauty and art and wonder and community and love and we have the potential to also create harmony and racism and fear and homophobia and envy and all kinds of you know, horrific things. We don't look at history to see that. And then we have to also include the harm as we live in a more interconnected world and more aware of our actions and the thread and the ripples and the influence of our decisions. We have to be aware of our impact and the harm that we may cause living. It's very hard to be a conscious, awake, ecologically minded person knowing that our very existence is in some way using up resources and having an ecological impact called a carbon footprint which we're contributing to climate change. Hopefully less as possible, but we're still part of the, the species that's causing that. I'm sure we're not going around burning forests, but we're using resources. How can we use our life force and energy and wisdom and creativity to create goodness and wholesomeness? To be a, a, a force for uh, mitigating the climate crisis, for example. You know, just having been in Bali, which is one stop north of Australia and feeling the utter tragedy and horrificness of the fires that are still raging because it's still peak midsummer there, 40 plus degrees in some areas, huge winds, huge fires. I forget what the latest millions of acres, what are we up to? We were up to 12 million hectares. Do we know what's the latest? Anybody know? We're probably close to 15. I wouldn't be surprised. 15 million acres, I wouldn't be surprised. Up to a billion animals killed. It's heartbreaking to just think about it and to see the images and to feel, you know, partly the the impact of the way humanity is living of rapacious consumption of fossil fuels and materialist living, raising temperatures, drying up the air, forest burning. It's hard to be with that. What can we do in our lives that can support a more sustainable way of living? How can we wake up governments, the Australian government, mostly in denial that climate change is happening? Oh, it's just fires we have every year, said Morrison, the Prime Minister, who was on holiday in Hawaii when the fires were raging. Wake up, we need to wake up. We need to wake up our politicians so they cease doing harm and learn to do good, whether it's in D.C. or Australia or in the U.K. or wherever. The Buddha said, The wise live without injuring nature. 
as the bee drinks nectar without harming the flowers. It's a beautiful metaphor. The wise live without injuring nature as the bee drinks nectar without harming the flowers. Clearly we're living on this planet. Clearly we need to live in harmony sustainably. In the same way that the bee needs nectar, we need food and clean water and air and whatnot. And there's ways to do that without harming or with minimizing the harming. So ceasing to do harm, so reflecting for yourselves where that may be the case and where may you make one small shift in harm. What was the one thing that you could do to reduce harming in your life? In your communication, in the way you treat your body, the way you treat others, the way you engage with the world. Cultivating goodness, cultivating the wholesome. As the Buddha said, as I mentioned earlier, be mindful of wholesome acts and repeat them over. Find pleasure in the well-integrated life and calm and peace will prevail. Skillful actions, wholesome actions will bring peace and understanding. So again, we're a species that have tremendous capacity for kindness. We can look anywhere and everywhere today and in history to look at the amazing ways that human beings care for each other, care for the planet. I was uh, reading a post from a friend um, about uh, Kobe uh, Bryant who died recently and she was sharing a story that I'd like to share that I think really speaks to this principle of um, cultivating kindness. She said, I met Kobe Bryant in April 2017 in Santa Monica. I was walking by him and our eyes made contact. I stopped him, smiled and said, are you? He smiled back and said, I am. I kept eye contact, placed my hand on my heart and thanked him for his work with the make, uh, make for, with, thanked him for his work with Make a Wish Foundation. I shared with him my new David, an eight-year-old child who got his wish granted by Kobe, attending a Lakers game and having a personal meet and greet with him. I let Kobe knew he had made David feel quite the most special child in the world, spending quality time with him, attentively asking him all kinds of questions and enthusiastically autographing everything David brought for him to sign. David's mom shared with me it was the best day of little, his little life. She'd never seen him smile so big. He talked about it every day after it happened and slept next to their picture together. David passed away six months later, yet Kobe made David's greatest dream come true in his lifetime to meet his real-life superhero. Kobe lit up with a smile and shared with me that granting wishes for children are some of his most proud and cherished life's moments. And so here we have this, you know, very amazing athlete and famous uh, basketball player and reflecting back on moments in his life and these moments of kindness, of care, of compassion right, being some of the most special and the most important. So if we look back in our lives, right, what, what moments touch you? Right? Probably moments of goodness, moments of care, Moments of kindness, moments when you were helping, moments when you were taking care of someone sick that you loved, holding someone's hand, consoling someone when they were crying, celebrating your kid's graduation, the moments when our heart is touched. Moments of goodness, moments of wholesomeness, where we have this capacity within us, very simple, very accessible doesn't take much. It takes a little awareness. takes a little open-heartedness. I'll share another story. Um, I love this story from Palestinian poet Naomi Shihab Nye, whose uh, uh, this poem's called Wandering Around the Albuquerque Airport Terminal, which is where I spend a lot of my time uh, myself teaching a lot, as I do in New Mexico. And she says, after learning that my flight had been detained for hours, I heard an announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days, doesn't one? 
Gate 4A was my own gate. I went there, an old woman in full traditional Palestinian embroidered dress, like just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight person, service person. Talk to her, what's her problem? We told her the flight was going to be late, and she did this. I stooped to put my arm around the woman and spoke to her haltingly in Arabic. The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought the flight had been cancelled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for major medical treatment the next day. I said, you're fine, you're fine, you'll get there. Who's picking you up? Let's call him. So we called her son and I spoke with him in English. I told him I'd stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her. She talked to him and then we called her other sons just for fun. Then we called my dad and he and she spoke for a while and found out, of course, they had 10 shared friends. Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I knew and let them talk, to, chat with them? This all took about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling us about her life, patting my knee, answering questions. She'd pulled out a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugary crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag, and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mum from California, the lovely woman from Loretto. We were all covered with the same powdered sugar. And smiling, there's no better cookie. And then the airline broke out free beverages and huge coolers and two little girls from our flight ran around serving us all apple juice. And they were covered with sugar too. And now my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag. Some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition always carry a plant always stay rooted to somewhere and I looked around that gate of late and weary ones and thought this is the world I want to live in the shared world not a single person in this gate once the crying of confusion stopped seemed apprehensive about any other person they took the cookies I wanted to hug all those other women too this can still happen anywhere not everything is lost So it's that simple, right? Just showing up with presence, kindness, awareness, a little t- patience, a little time. And beautiful moments can happen. So I had the good fortune this last week of uh, thawing out in Bali, um, mostly in the jungle, up in the mountain um, in the west. Um, and um, again, being... Uh, really uh, awestruck by the the strength of the culture despite the onslaught of tourism and, and uh, Western um, culture, the traditional Balinese uh, culture, Hindu-influenced culture, very, very alive, especially in the countryside, um, especially about their, their rootedness to place, their rootedness to family, their rootedness to community, and their rootedness to nature, and just witnessing as one does when one goes to Bali. It's, just, it's almost like this perennial celebration and festival. Every time I've been there, there's festivals, uh, mostly honoring ancestors, honoring uh, the spirits of the mountain, spirits of the land, spirits of the rice field, spirits of the water spirits of um, spirits and um, you know the, the going to see the temples the temples are often built around these huge trees and the trees that are not in the temples are uh, embroidered with uh, cloth so they're not cut and this is deep deep um, uh, reverence to land to rhythm to tradition And I could see how that 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 deep reverence was its own expression of goodness, own expression of uh, wholesomeness, of skillfulness, keeping people connected to the land, keeping people connected to the cycles, to nature, to respect for the land, to respect for the community, and incredibly, like the whole places that I was in seemed to just be thriving with goodness and wholesomeness. In the same way that I felt in Bhutan also, that when a country 
the, the culture is, is uh, oriented around these principles of goodness, kindness, generosity, truthfulness. That there's a kind of a basic goodness in people. And you could say Buddha nature. And this is a, a sort of a healthy sense of well-being that feels robust in people. So you may reflect for yourselves in what ways can you cultivate wholesomeness, cultivate goodness, goodness that gladdens the mind and heart for yourself and for others. Of course we all do this naturally. We all have innate goodness and Buddha nature. And so of course, probably every day we do things that are kind, that are caring, that are generous, that are respectful, that are sensitive, that are friendly. If we didn't, we would kill each other. So society survives with this basic goodness. And yet when we tend to it and we see when we smile, when we're generous, when we're patient, when we're caring, when we see the well-being that that creates, what do we want to do? We want to, we want to cultivate it more. Um, uh, an, an older woman was once asked how she was, what she used to make her complexion so beautiful and her whole being so bright and attractive. And she answered, I use for my lips truth. I use for my voice kindness. I use for my ears, compassion. I use for my hands, charity. I use for my figure, uprightness. I use for my heart, love. And I use for any who do not like me, prayer. So, how to make one's appearance, right? We can see when you're around someone who's, who you know has a lot of goodness and kindness and generosity, there's a sparkle in their eyes, there's a shine in their face and their skin, there's an aliveness that they could be 98, there's a vitality, there's, a, there's an inner beauty that can't help but radiate outwards. And someone might be the most exquisitely form beautiful in the world, but if there's not goodness inside, we feel it, it has, it, there's a, it impacts the the, the, the outer form. Someone was telling me a story about meeting the Dalai Lama back in, in the 70s or the 80s. And um, where, I try to remember where, this, where I heard this story. It was in an, it was, there was a, um, in an airport. Um, I think it was, might have been in Indonesia. And um, there was some kind of bomb scare or something, and, and there was a lot of turbulence at the airport. And the, uh, this, the airport was cleared out, and uh, they had to come back the next morning to catch the plane. And so they were just waiting in the lobby. Um, and it just so happened that Dalai Lama was also flying out of that airport, and he came by with his entourage, and he just looked at my friend. And just with that incredible, powerful presence he has. And she said she just felt transformed by that presence, by that goodness, that kindness. Just the, just the look of warmth and kindness in the eyes. So how do we practice goodness? How do we practice kindness, wholesomeness? Oh, it's almost time to go home. I'll, be, I'll practice wholesomeness by letting you out on time. Um, which to your relief, I'm sure. So I was staying, had this staying in this beautiful uh, eco-lodge in the forest up in the mountain, um, on a mountain that I'm going to butcher by saying its name. I'm not going to even try, but it was a beautiful mountain. And this couple moved there um, with their children. They wanted to find a, a better life for their kids and from Australia, so they moved to the jungle and had a very simple life, homeschooled, and then friends started getting curious about where they were, so they built a f- some simple bamboo huts and cabins, and they started to have friends, and then they realized more people wanted to start coming, so they built this lodge, and, and they got interested in the local agriculture and reviving some of the medicinal plants and some, some of the plants that had died out of use, and they started to become more integrated in the community, and they realized that they can actually support the community by hiring people and training people as guides and as cooks and as supporting the healers in the village. And, and so this beautiful 
outpouring of, of goodness, really, that, that came out of love for the land, love for the people, love for the culture. And it, just, it, was, it was such a beautiful example of how when we stay rooted and clear about our intention, intention to be connected, to do goodness, to do good work, to help. This whole flowering of work that's come out of that and the whole area has revived and then they now moved on to doing um, uh, coral reef restoration and training local fishermen in ecological tourism and supporting other communities in that way. And, And so... If you look at the, the, the ripples and the radius of your own life, where, where is goodness wanting to be felt or developed or cultivated? And again, very simple is where, where could goodness and wholesomeness arise in relationship to yourself? Maybe a little more kindness, a little more self-compassion, a little more patience with yourself. A little more, what, how, how would that inform if you had this intention for kindness towards, you, towards others? Where would that manifest? Where is kindness and goodness, wholesomeness most needing to be in your relationship? Probably the one that's conflicted, probably the one that's painful, probably the one that you're avoiding. How could we bring more goodness to this earth? What, what we, could we do in our small and large ways that could be beneficial, that could bring goodness and healing to this earth that's burning and drying? So cease to do harm, cultivate goodness, purify and train the mind. That's the subject for a whole other talk, right? Meditation, mind training, concentration, mindfulness, awareness. Without that awareness training, without training the mind, the mind gets a bit wild. So we can train our minds. All right, I'll close with a a reading and then I'll let you go. These are some words... I'm not sure who ever wrote this, but it's, they were posted on the wall of Mother Teresa's home. I'm sure you've heard this before, but it doesn't hurt to hear it again because it's really about tenacity. So, Reducing harm, letting go of harm, cultivating goodness, training the mind takes a certain perseverance. And these words go like this, called anyway. People are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you'll win some unfaithful friends and genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will be often forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. All right, I'll just close with uh, another chant, uh, the same chant actually, just to... um, So these chants are in Pali, which is the early uh, language that these texts were written down in. And... um, Cease to do harm, cultivate goodness, purify the mind. Sabapapasa karanam kusalasa upasampada sachita paryodapanang etang buranang sasanang damang chare sucharitang nanam du charitang chare dama chare sukam seti Asmim loke parimicha Natavata damadaro Yavata bahu basati Yacho apang bitsutvana damankayena pasari Save damadaro Hoti o damangnapamajati Nati me saranang anyang, buddho me saranang varam, 
etena sacha vachena hotume jaya mangalang nati me saranangan dhammo me saranangvaram etena sacha vachena hotume jaya mangalang Nati me jaya mangalang, sango me saranangvaram, etena sachavachena, hotu me jaya mangalang, namo buddhaya, namo dhammaya, namo sanghaya, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you for your attention. Go well. Take care. See you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.